how would you handle it? You're a religious man. Let's go so far as to say a Christian religious man. You've been married for several years, and then your wife says to you, I know that you feel that you need to have sex, but I'm not interested. And so she cuts you off. You go years without any kind of sexual interaction with your wife whatsoever, and finally you decide you've had enough. Therefore, you file for divorce. Whereupon she immediately starts telling people at church, you're a terrible husband. Everything is all your fault. And you feel, first of all, that the church should be addressing this. What is it about husbands and wives? Shouldn't they be having sex with each other? And secondly, should you go and defend yourself? Protect yourself in terms of what people at church think about you? Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Beam. I've got a caller that talked about just this very thing And while this is not a religious program particularly, I am going to be talking about it from a religious standpoint as well as a marriage standpoint in answering his question. I think you'll be very interested in what he has to say. Hello, Joe. I was just curious about if you had any idea why churches never mention the problem of sexual refusal. I was married for 28 years, and the last six years, my wife just told me too bad. She was not interested, and it was my problem. Uh, This became very painful to me, and it just about devastated my self-esteem, and I finally couldn't take it anymore and moved out. We're getting a divorce, and my wife is now telling everyone who listened that she had no idea why I left, that she was the perfect wife, and I'm just a sinful person that needs prayer. I'm kind of torn between just keeping this private and fighting with the urge to tell everyone that I know that she was not a good wife and that not only did she refuse me, but she also insulted me in the most personal way she could. I'm just wondering why churches, nobody mentions this. It's like people pretend like it don't exist. Anyway, thank you very much. Well, there are those among us who are Christians that do talk about this. I am one. As I've said, I don't do this program always from a Christian perspective. I mean, my Ph.D. is not in Bible. It has to do with marital satisfaction and, interestingly, with sexual satisfaction. However, I am a Christian. I'm a Bible student. My undergraduate degree, my Bible, deg- uh, my bachelor's degree, I should say, is in Bible, and thirty-something graduate hours in Bible, which certainly does not make me a Bible scholar. But since you've talked about this from a Christian perspective, I'm going to be talking about it both as a marriage expert. That's what my doctorate is in, and that's what I do for a living with the thousands and thousands of couples that we've worked with. But also from a biblical perspective. Now, I can't tell you why churches do or don't do anything, because churches pretty well operate on their own. What I mean by that is they make their own decisions about what they will do and they won't do. Can I find myself sometimes perplexed by what churches do or don't do? And the answer is yes. Do I feel that sometimes they should be intervening in the lives of people when they don't? And the answer again would be yes. Yet there are great churches out there that actually do these things. I mean, they're great at teaching Bible, but they're also great at rolling up their sleeves and getting right into the lives of people and doing everything they can to help out. And so when you say churches, understand that that covers (laughs) thousands upon thousands of groups of people. 
And I'll just say again, there's some awesome churches out there that do a great job. And then just like with everything else in life, there are some that maybe don't do quite so well. I enjoy going to churches to talk about sex. Obviously, it's not something I preach about from the pulpit on Sunday morning. I think that would kind of freak churches out. But I often come in and do a Friday night and Saturday, or sometimes just Saturday, session where I talk about love, sex, and marriage. And in that, I do a great deal of teaching about sex from the Bible because... The Bible is full of teaching about sex, and not just in terms of don't do this and don't do that. It is quite obvious that God intended for the sexual union between a husband and wife to be extremely pleasurable, very fulfilling, not just from the physical standpoint, but also from the spiritual dimension and the emotional dimension, even the mental dimension of the meshing of these two people. And so if your church, for example, of those who are listening— if you're a pastor or a church leader, minister, I'd love to come to your church and talk about what the Bible says about sex in a very positive way. Not to come in and browbeat anybody or beat anybody up, including the church leadership. That's just not what I want to do. I'd rather come in and talk about sex using the scriptures and showing people things that they just haven't seen that are there and how that God intends for us to have a wonderful, amazing sex life together. As a matter of fact, if you want to invite me to do that, you can call our office, 615-472-1161. That's 615-472-1161 and say, let me speak to Johnny because he can book that for you if you wish me to come talk about that. Be aware. <laughs> if you do, I do a, I'll use a lot of humor in that, and sometimes I can get a little edgy. Now, let's go back from my telling you that I'm happy to come speak for churches on that matter to dealing specifically with his question. Does the Bible talk about sexual refusal? And the answer is, yes, actually, it does. You see, if you turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see at the end of that chapter that the Apostle Paul was telling single Christians at Corinth to quit having sex with temple prostitutes. Apparently, the temples, the pagan temples in Corinth, had both male prostitutes and female prostitutes, and that single Christians who were not married were fulfilling their sex drives by going to see these prostitutes. And so at the end of chapter 6, he's telling them, stop that. Now, as he tells them to do that, he makes an interesting point. It's an implied argument. You can look at it to see if you think it's there or not. I think it's there. I think it's clear, but, you know, feel free to study for yourself. That one of the arguments he makes is kind of an esoteric argument. He basically says, because you are one with God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And when you become one sexually with another person, and here's where the implied argument is, you become one spiritually with him or her as well. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are in essence trying to make the Holy Spirit become one with that person, which he does not want to do. Very clearly, he's making it for us to understand that sex is not just about the uniting of two bodies. There's a spiritual union that occurs there. Of course, we know about the emotional union that comes there, and hopefully even the mental union that comes there. And he's saying, don't have that with somebody you should not be involved with. But he doesn't tell them, go take cold showers. In other words, he doesn't say, just swallow that sex drive, make it go away, because God, God put that in us. It is there because of the way God made us, and he expects us to fulfill it. So what do you do? 
Well, in chapter 7, he says something that is not common in American culture, something that we probably would not say to our own children, although I did to mine because it's right there in the book. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's verses 2 through 5. Now, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Feel free to check it in any Bible translation that you have or that you wish. So 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5 from the NLT. Because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. By the way, that's where it kind of varies from American culture right there. We tend to tell our young people, oh, get a good education first, finish college, get a job, put some money in the bank, and then and then you can think about getting married. Where what he's telling them here, in chapter 6, he says, quit having sex outside of marriage. And in chapter 7, he says, so here's what you do about it. Get married. Now, that's not how we think, is it? <laughs> you mean he's telling them to get married, to have sex? That's exactly what he's telling them. I'll read it to you again. But there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, if you marry that person because you need sexual fulfillment, what would occur if the person you married wasn't interested in sex? Well, you'd go from the uh, proverbial frying pan into the fire, you understand. So he goes ahead and immediately says this. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, again, that's the New Living Translation. If you'd like to read it in some of the other translations, feel free. You're going to find the same basic teaching there, no matter which translation you use. And what is that? Well, we should get married to fulfill our sexual desires, or even our sexual needs, I should say, and that, therefore, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's. Because what we've done by getting married is we've given our spouses the authority over our own bodies. In other words, when I married Alice, it's to say to Alice, my, my body now belongs to you. I, I, if you can find sexual fulfillment from me or wish sexual fulfillment from me, I will not withhold my body from you. And the same, the same in what she would say back to me. My body belongs to you, Joe. I'm here to fulfill you as you're here to fulfill me. Now, we'll be partners. Neither one of us is a slave. Neither one of us is just an object. But part of what happens in this physical intellectual, emotional, and spiritual intimacy of coming together as one flesh is that you have a right to me and I have a right to you and we're going to do that because he says you don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Do what? You should not be avoiding sex with each other. You should not be depriving each other of sex. Now, why would people do it? Well, we understand that there are a lot of reasons that people might refrain from wanting to have sex. For example, if one got sick for a while, we understand that. 
Or let's say your your wife or your husband's father or mother died and for a little while they're in mourning and you might say, well, I understand it's not the time to push for sex right now because you're dealing with the, the pain of losing a parent. I mean, there are times when it makes sense not to push for sex from the other person. But he says, when you decide to refrain from it, it's not because you're depriving the other person. Don't do that. Well, let's think more specifically about that word, depriving. What do you mean? It means I'm withholding sexual favor from you. No, why would a person do that? Hmm. Maybe because I'm angry with you. Maybe because I'm trying to manipulate you or to control you. There could be any number of reasons. He doesn't discuss the reason, saying, well, it's okay to deprive for this and okay to deprive for that, but not okay to deprive for this other. He didn't say that. He just said, don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. We need sexual fulfillment. We should not be avoiding it. And then he says, now afterwards, in other words, after this period of time that you go without sex, that you have mutually agreed to, afterwards, you should come together again. And then he gives us a reason. He said, so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now think about that. There are not many things in the Bible that say that, you know, you actually can contribute to what the other person's, I'm going to use the word sin, if you'll allow me, that you can contribute to the other person's sin by what you do or what you don't do. But here, it's pretty clear. You see, if I need sexual fulfillment and my wife refuses to do so, then that gives Satan, I'm reading from Paul right here in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, that gives Satan an ability to tempt me because of my lack of self-control. But if you have read this entire passage with me, you see that it's not just my struggle, but that my wife, by not fulfilling me sexually, by depriving me of sexual fulfillment in relationships, she's actually become part of making me temptable because of my lack of self-control. And so it's not just talking about me here as to whether or not I yield to temptation. It's talking about her role in it, that she should be fulfilling me sexually so that I won't be tempted because of my lack of self-control. And I should be doing the same for her, fulfilling her sexually so that she won't be tempted because of her lack of self-control. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, Joe, I, I don't know how this would apply equally to each gender, because isn't it true that men have more desire for sex than do women? And the answer is not necessarily. There are many marriages where that the wife actually wants sex more often than does the husband. And those are not strange or weird marriages. Trust me. It's just that some people have stronger sex drives than others. Now, we do know that based on the statistics in America, that when a couple, if a couple goes to a sex therapist for help, that the number one presenting problem is a um, discrepancy of desire slash frequency. In other words, one wants to have sex more often than the other. One has a stronger desire than does the other. And you might be saying, well, it's going to be always the guy with the stronger desire. And I'm telling you, no, it's not that I've dealt with many couples where it's just the other way around. Now, if you're talking about just sex, I mean, just the sex part of it, then maybe the guy's more. But if you're understanding the connection between the two people that also involves the mind, the heart, the soul, the emotions, then it's often the woman. And so what is he saying here? 
This has been designed by God for you to fulfill each other, and you should be doing it. Now, when this guy says, my wife, for six years, refused to participate with me sexually, not knowing any more about the story than what he said, and I do understand I am not hearing her side, but just basing on what this man said that you just listened to along with me, then according to the scripture, the wife is sinning. Hmm. What does that mean? Well, she's sinning because of the fact that she should be involved with him sexually. Now, we could probably send him to a sex therapist, maybe even to a marriage counselor to find out if something else is going on. For example, in my own research, where I have researched marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction, when I'm asking uh, that, and by the way, this was with over 5,000 people in this particular research project, when women were giving reasons about why they were no longer sexually attracted to their spouses, their number one reason had to do with the relationship. Like, I don't like this relationship anymore, therefore I don't want to go to bed with him. Hmm. If you looked at the physical reasons that women gave about why they didn't want to have sex with their husbands, the number one physical reason was hygiene. He's not taking care of himself the way he should. He's not bathing, those kinds of things. And if you looked at the research, again, my research, this is unpublished research, as to what would make the wife feel dissatisfied even when they're having sex, the number one reason that women gave, other than relationships, like we're having problem with our relationship period, was that my husband's not a very good lover. He doesn't know how to be romantic. He doesn't know how to do the things he needs to do. So the research is out there, not just by me, but by many people, indicating there are all kinds of things out there that must be dealt with. But right now we're talking about the basic underlying principle. And what's that? That basic underlying principle is we need to be fulfilling each other sexually. Now, that might mean if we're having some kind of a physiological problem that one or both of us needs to go see a physician that can help us figure out what's going on and understand that just like with every other profession on the planet, not all physicians are created equal. In other words, there are some who have their own sexual hangups. They don't want to talk about sex either. That's probably not the physician you need to see <laughs> if you're trying to figure out how to solve a physiological problem about sex. You say, well, what kind of physiological problems, Will? There's a thing like, for example, called vaginismus, which some women have, which is a, I'm going to simplify it. Actually, I'm going to oversimplify it. But vaginismus has to do with the contraction of the vaginal muscles. In other words, it becomes so difficult because it's basically clamping together on itself that penetration cannot even occur. And from that vaginismus, from that pain, then there can be no penile vaginal intercourse. PVI is what is called in the social sciences. It can occur because of the fact that she has that problem. And even if you went to see a gynecologist obstetrician, not all of them know how to deal with that. For example, one young woman told me that she went to see her doctor and that he thought, well, I'll just fix that. And he tried to do it by ramming an instrument inside of her. She, even though she was in her early 20s, told me I will never, ever go to a gynecologist's obstetrician again. And that doctor, the one who did that, didn't know what he was doing. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't want to call him an idiot because I might be slandered. But if I could, I might be guilty of slander, <laughs> sued for slander. But if I could call him an idiot, I would. That's ridiculous. 
Or if a male has erectile dysfunction and goes to see a doctor to say, can you help me with this? Some know how to do it and some don't. Now, I'm certainly not putting down physicians just like I wasn't putting down churches. I'm saying that some do things better than others. And if there's a physiological problem, either for him or her, see a doctor. And if that one doesn't know how to help you, find one who does. Now, since most of the problems are not necessarily physiological. I mean, they exist and most of them can be fixed. But in a situation like this, we were married 28 years and in the last six, she says, I don't want to have sex anymore. And when he asked her, go see a doctor, let's do something and find out what we need to do to fix this. She said, this is your problem. In other words, basically saying, if I don't want it, then it's your problem. You figure out what's going to happen here to make you fulfilled because I'm not going to do that. And I'm telling you that based on this passage right here, she is sinning. Now, if you're thinking about, wait, 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 Dr. Beam, you've already said there could be a whole lot of reasons here. For example, there may be a great problem in the relationship. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to try to fulfill this passage, then whatever the problem is, whether it's physical Intellectual, let's say the mind. Emotional, let's say the heart. Spiritual, no matter what it is, I'll be seeking the help I need to repair it. That we both need to repair it. Why? So that we can fulfill each other sexually, which is what God expects us to do and says in this passage. So even if there's an underlying reason, then what we need to do is address the reason. That would make it wrong, for example, for me just to say to you, well, it's your problem. I don't want to have sex, so it's your problem. Can you see how that's just wrong from a biblical standpoint? So what should churches be doing? Well, in my opinion, the churches then should be teaching on this. And I admit and agree that it can be a very difficult thing to do from a Sunday morning pulpit standpoint where you know, you've got children in the audience, you've got people who are visiting your church that may not even be familiar with your church or even familiar with Christianity, and they walk in and sit down, and all of a sudden, the minister opens his Bible or her Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, and starts saying that you need to fulfill each other sexually. You may freak some people out. <laughs> I know that's possible. That's why I've never preached on that kind of a passage on a Sunday morning sermon for a church. Although I speak a lot of Sunday mornings for churches. This could be better done, probably. Now, you can do it for couples. That's what I do. Like on a Friday night or a Saturday, the couples come. They know what's going to be talked about, and they know it's going to be frank. Or or even a class where that women are taught by a woman and men are taught by men. And I usually tell churches, if you're going to do that... Make sure that the man who teaches the men and make sure that the woman who teaches the women have great marriages and that they have a lot of fulfilling sex. Now, obviously, I don't mean you've got to do some kind of survey here. Tell me how often you have sex and what do you do? <laughs> I don't mean that. But where each of them, each of them would say, yes, we have a very fulfilling and meaningful sex life both the man and the woman. And that's the kind of woman you want teaching the women, and that's the kind of men and that you want teaching the men. And there's even an allusion to that in the New Testament where it says that the older women should teach the younger women how to love their husbands at home. Now, I'm quite convinced that means more than learning how to make up the bed or, or cook a good meal. 
To love your husband at home involves a lot of things about relationship, including sexuality. But unfortunately, in some churches, even the mention of sex is so forbidden. Now, maybe there's no written rule on the wall that says you can't talk about sex, but people know that you really can't talk about sex because people start freaking out if you do. Then who would a guy like this go to? Is he going to go to his pastor, his ministers, his church elders, his church leaders? Can you help me? If sex is something that's never, ever talked about in that church, even in those Bible classes or in those private sessions I've been talking about, then he's going to feel uncomfortable asking their help. And who is she going to go to? You say, but couldn't they? Hmm. If I thought that my minister, pastor, whatever, or church leaders, church elders, let's say, if I thought those people were open to understanding and listening, could I then say, wife, would you please go with me? Let's sit down with these people and let me tell them that I'm unfulfilled and that you haven't had sex with me in years. And let's talk about it from a Bible standpoint. Yeah, I would do that if I thought they'd be open and they'd listen. And if I thought that they wouldn't be freaked out by talking about it. And if I thought that they understood passages like this. Oh, and by the way, this is just one of many passages in the Bible to talk about sex. Again, uh, and I'm sorry if this sounds like a commercial, but I really like doing this, and I'm quite convinced a lot of churches benefit from it. I would love to come to your church or your nonprofit organization or even your for-profit organization. I've actually done this for some corporations, believe it or not, and talk about love, sex, and marriage, where I talk about relationships because that's a big part of it. And I talk about how that you can fulfill each other emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. And for people that are not churches like corporations, I don't become real religious there. And that you also can fulfill each other physically or sexually. And for any organization that cares about their people and their marriages and relationships, this is valid. I'd love to come do it for you. Again, and I'll give that number for the last time and to get off that, you can you can find out about that by calling 615-472-1161. That's 615-472-1161. Ask for Johnny. He can help you with that. But back to this topic right now. Yes, sir. I think the churches should be teaching this. Maybe not Sunday morning or no pulpit, but churches should be teaching this. And there should be a culture, in my opinion whether you know there are people in your church who are wise people, spiritual people, godly people, mature people that you could go talk to about this. And then you don't wind up being sexless for six years. That's just wrong. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy is talking about church, but listen to him. I mean, he says now he's divorcing her. I mean, isn't that wrong? I mean, she didn't commit adultery or anything, and I do understand that there are many churches that believe that the only reason for divorce is if the other person has been sexually unfaithful to you. And in a situation like this, you're pretty well assured of the fact that she's <laughs> she's not sleeping with anybody else. She's not interested in sex at all. So can a divorce her? Talked to a couple a couple of years ago and she said, well, he'll never divorce me because church is too important to him and I've not committed adultery. I've not been unfaithful to him, to which I replied, oh, he is going to divorce you. I mean, I wish he wouldn't. I've tried to talk him out of it, but I'll guarantee he's going to. And it's not. It's not because he hates you. It's not because he dislikes you. As a matter of fact, the very thing that's going to lead him to divorce you 
is the fact that he's madly in love with you and lying in the bed next to you at night and you have refused for years and years and years to be involved with him sexually. He can't live like that anymore. He can't be in the same house with you. He can't know that you're in that shower in there. He can't lie next to you in the bed. He can't give you a good morning kiss without thinking, I am deprived of the oneness that I want with this person that I love. And that's why he's going to divorce you. She said, well, what he's doing is wrong. I said, whether he thinks it's wrong or not, he's going to do it because he loves you and he can't stand living in a sexless marriage. But let's think about this for a minute. And I'm not trying to tell churches what to do. And I'm certainly, certainly not trying to create your theology. But would you just think about this a little bit? You know, a church wouldn't tolerate a spouse committing adultery by having sex with someone other than their spouse, right? So why should it tolerate the adultery of refusing to have sex with each other? You say, what? Wait, 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 back up. Adultery of not having sex with each other? Well, this is based on my understanding of the word adultery, and you may disagree. If I had time, I'd show you some passages that lead me to this conclusion, but I'm not trying to convince you theologically. I'm just trying to give you something to think about. But my understanding of the word adultery is that it's a violation of the marriage contract. And that's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5 and again in Matthew chapter 19, he uses the word uh, about sexual immorality, unless your spouse has been sexually immoral. He doesn't use the word adultery there. He uses the word sexually immoral. And then he goes on to talk about what would commit adultery after that. Do what? Well, sexual immorality is certainly a violation of the marriage contract. And in that sense, it is adultery. But throughout the Old and New Testament, I'm quite convinced the word adultery is not just about sex. It's about violating the marriage contract. And therefore, refusing to have sex with your spouse, based on that passage I just read for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, my understanding is that is a violation of the marriage contract. Yeah, it's that serious. Notice that in the passage, Paul says that we are not to deprive each other. Now, the renowned theologian, Gordon Fee, writes about that word, the word deprive. He says, and I'm quoting now, he says, the use of the verb deprive is especially striking. It's the same verb used in chapter 6 for the man who had defrauded another. It's a pejorative word for taking away what rightfully belongs to another. If you want to check that out, by the way, it's uh, his, Gordon Fee's, his book, The First Epistle to the Corinthians. And you can find that. It was published back in 1993 by Erdman's. What are you saying? Well, you are defrauding the other person. You are taking away what rightfully belongs to him or her. That's a big deal. All right, well, let me quote from somebody else. A guy named Bob Deffenbaugh. I hope I'm pronouncing Bob's last name correctly. <laughs> it's D-E-F-F-I-N-B-A-U-G-H. And, and uh, you can go to Bible.org and look for Bob Deffenbaugh and look for his uh, comments on 1 Corinthians 7. Let me just quote some of them for you, okay? He says, Paul does not stress the submission of the wife to her husband here as though it is his role to get pleasure from his wife and her role to get pleasure to the husband. There is mutual submission here so that both the husband and the wife are to subordinate their interests, in other words, their pleasure and sex, to the interests of their mate. Consider the guiding principles for what we might call spirit-filled 
marital sex. He goes on to write, The norm is that Christians will marry and that as a Christian couple, the husband and wife will enjoy regular sexual relations. And then he goes on to say, A healthy sex life is a preventative for immorality. And then later he writes, Both husband and wife should eagerly engage in the sexual act as their duty, both to God and to their mate. And then later he says, both husband and wife should not only give themselves for sex, but each should seek to produce the ultimate pleasure for their partner. Reaching the ultimate pleasure in the sexual union is what best ensures against immorality. And then later he says, neither the husband nor the wife has the authority to deprive their mate sexually. And then again, those Christians who have been forcibly making a celibate of their mate by withholding sex are commanded to stop sinning in this fashion. And by the way, that's a strong sentence, but that actually does tell you what that verse says. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, I'm going to read again what Diffenbaugh says because he's got it dead on here. Those Christians who have been forcibly making a celibate of their mate by withholding sex are commanded to stop sinning in this fashion. If you don't think that's right, go back and read those verses again. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5, that's exactly the point of that. And finally, Diffenbaugh says, sexual abstinence is to be a rare and temporary exception to the norm of regular sexual union. Now I'm going to read that 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5 once more after reading all of that, just so you can see that's there. Again, here's what it says. Because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I know that of those listening, there are some husbands and some wives right now who are angry with me. <laughs> They're saying, you don't understand. Typical man. Well, actually, I'm not a typical man, but thanks for the compliment. Typical man. You don't understand. If you knew what our relationship was like, if you knew the way he treated me, if you knew, hey, I hope that you heard what I said earlier. If there's an underlying problem, you need to go fix it. And this passage is the impetus for you to go fix it. Because if you can't be involved with your husband or your wife sexually because of the relationship that you have with each other, because of the way that he behaves, because of the way that she lives, because of the fact that there's a physiological problem, a mental problem, an emotional problem, a spiritual problem, then go find the help you need to fix it. Because this passage says you should be fulfilling each other sexually. And I understand you don't want to get into bed with a man who's treating you like dirt. I get it. I do understand that. I wouldn't want to get into bed with a woman who treated me like dirt. But this passage indicates that rather than just writing the other person off, you find the help you need to solve the problem. So six years, 
forced into celibacy. This man finally divorces her. And what does she do? She goes to the church people, according to him. And again, we are not hearing her side, just his. But she goes to the church people. And what does she say? I don't know why he's divorcing me. He's a terrible husband. I don't know who this guy was, by the way. And as far as I know, he may be a terrible husband. I mean, he may be. But is she right to go do that? No. No, she's not. Now, I could go into the biblical part of it about Matthew 18, that you first deal with it just with each other, and then you go to some of the leaders in the church or two or three people, and you only take it to the, to the big church or to more people if you can't solve it that way. But let me not go into the biblical part now. Let me go back and be, again, the marriage expert where my Ph.D. is and with all the experience I've had with so many thousands of couples and say this. It is not. It is not going to be to your benefit to say bad things about your husband or your wife. Because here's what the guy said. She's telling people she doesn't know why. And I'm telling you why. I've been hurt. I've been rejected. And did you notice what he said? It wasn't just a physical rejection. He said, my self-esteem is destroyed. And by the way, that's what can happen either to a man or a woman being refused sexual favor by their spouse. That indeed, their sexual and personal self-esteem can be destroyed. And yet she's making it worse by telling people, I don't know why he's divorcing me. He's just a terrible husband. Lady, if you happen to listen to this, please stop doing that. And does it do any good for him then to go say, whoa, wait a minute. Let me tell the church what she's been doing so I can rescue my reputation and let them know just how bad this thing is. Why? What does that accomplish for you? You see, if you have church leaders who really will listen to you and really will try to help, then go sit down with them. But really, and forgive me if this sounds judgmental, I don't want to sound judgmental. You should have done that six years ago. Do you understand? Six years ago, you shouldn't have gone to this point where finally you're divorcing without asking for the help from your church. And if you're thinking, well, I didn't go six years ago because they won't understand, they won't listen, they're just not those kind of people, then my question is, why would you talk to them now? What advantage is there to that? And the answer is none. If you can rescue this marriage, it would be wonderful. If your wife, to avoid the divorce, is willing to get the help that she needs, that you both need to develop a sex life again, and I strongly recommend that you find the help to do that. There are Christian sexologists out there. Actually, let me say that differently. There are Christian sex therapists out there. I'm a Christian sexologist. A sexologist is one who studies sex and teaches sex. I am not a sex therapist. And probably what you need is a sex therapist. You can look online. You may not find one nearby. You may actually have to do it long distance with somebody because there are just not that many if you intend for it to be a Christian sex therapist. If you go to a different kind of sex therapist, then you will need to explain to him or her at the very outset what your beliefs and values are. If, if your wife is not agreeing to do that, maybe she'll agree to do this. Go to Amazon.com and look for a book called Sexual Awareness. And then what you want is the fifth edition, Sexual Awareness by Barry McCarthy and his wife, Barry McCarthy and fifth edition. The way you'll know you got the right edition is if you go down to read the reviews, see if you can find one by me, Joe Beam. 
And if you find mine, then you'll know you've got the right one. And that's a book that you together, you together can use to work this out. You say, well, we need more than a book, but I don't think she'll go to sex therapy with me. Well, then there's one other thing. If you'd like to get on a mailing list, because this should be out in the next few months, not part of marriagehelper.com, which is what I do for my day job, but part of another organization, we have actually made um, a video product where I teach about sex. There's 12 chapters, about seven and a half hours of information. Not just my teaching about sex, but we also have four different actor couples that will talk out various sexual scenarios so that you can see how a couple would discuss this or discuss that. No nudity or anything like that. You understand they talk. And I have built into that product several profiles where you can actually measure your own sexuality. You can measure the sexual compatibility between the two of you. You can actually get a little bit of an idea about what inhibitions exist. And there are actually instruments you can use, tools I've built into that product that you can use to decide how to uh, test the envelope. In other words, what new things could we do that, rather than causing harm, could actually help? If you want to know about that, then you need to get on the mailing list. And you can do that by emailing info at marriagehelper.com. That's info at marriagehelp, E-R, marriagehelper.com. Now, understand this is not a Marriage Helper product, but you should be able to purchase it through Marriage Helper, hopefully, before too very much longer. And it's something that a couple can use, just the two of them together, to enhance and develop their sex lives. I'm quite convinced that God does want us to have good sex lives. I'm quite convinced, as I've already said, that churches should be having classes. I'll be happy to come do it for you. Or, or you can find a good couple in your church. Let him teach the men and her teach the women. But you know, this passage, and as a matter of fact, the man's complaint, why don't churches teach about the sin of refusal? It's there. It's right there in the book. And we shouldn't be afraid of talking about sex. God writes about it a lot, both in the Old and New Testaments. And trust me, God wants us to have amazing sex lives. He really does. Not depriving each other, but fulfilling each other physically, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. By the way, if you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on these podcasts, then you can record your question for me by going to speakpipe, that's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E, speakpipe.com slash Joe Beam. That's J-O-E-B-E-A-M. So I'll say that again, speakpipe.com pipe.com slash Joe Beam, and you can record there a question for me, and I'll answer in these podcasts. Please ask your questions and tune in often. We care, and we want to help.